All right, I want to welcome on my next guest. We've got NFL Network analyst, Ivy League legend, and former <laughs> New York Giants scouting guru. We've got Mr. Mark Ross. Mark, is everything going for you? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for having me, Zach. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So well, well, first, I want to get into the, the, the Ivy League legend. So <laughs> do, do, do uh, this, this is the, I was thinking about this earlier. Who is your, your Ivy League Matt Rushmore of football players? Man, you, you threw that out there real quick, man. Jeez. The Ivy I'll, give you, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Ed Marinara. I had him on. had a feeling he might be on your list. Yeah, that's definitely that. Um, well, I go Dick Casmer, just Princeton, you know, Heisman Trophy winner. Got to go with my Princeton guy. Jeez, um, you, hey, you're stretching me now. Calvin Hill. Calvin Hill's got to be Hill. there, I would think. Yeah. And Fitz, Fitzmagic make the, make the top four? He wasn't that good of an Ivy League player, man. He just, made, he, just made, he just made a name for himself <laughs> in the league, but. I actually scouted Fitzmagic back in the really? day. I was first starting out when he came out, and I thought, yeah, good backup, you know, making the league as a backup. Didn't think it'd be 35 years later. He put his hands. So I want to ask you a little bit about some of the offseason storylines that are going on right now. I'm not sure if these are going to be settled by the time I post this, but I want to ask you some of your thoughts on what's going on with the Philadelphia front office and Carson Wentz, and if, if you're surprised that they're taking this approach. Yeah, it really is. When, when you have a franchise quarterback, you want stability. You want everybody to know this is your guy. You know, I worked in Philly uh, for eight years with Donovan McNabb. You know, it was part of the process of drafting Donovan. I uh, worked in Buffalo for three years where it was chaos with the quarterback situation. Then I got with the Giants with Eli Manning, um, obviously the most stable of the stable as far as, you know, dependability. So as far as with Eli and Donovan, everybody knew that this is the guy and let's build the team. Let's work around this being the guy whereas Philly now is just all right Carson they give up so much to go get him and then he falls out of he plays well then falls out of favor and now um they draft Jalen Hurts in the second round to, to create even more controversy then Carson doesn't play this well obviously this year but then you thought when they brought Nick Sariani in there it would be all right now we're going to recommit to Carson because this is Frank Reich's guy we're hiring him out of the blue because he's Frank Reich's guy but now all of a sudden it seems as if he's back on the trading block again. So I, the sooner they get that stabilized, the better for the entire organization. Um, and I'm not sure what their strategy is there, but the sooner it gets resolved, the better. And I think it's really kind of unprecedented with a team giving up so much to get a guy and so soon afterwards they're trying to uh, uh, part ways with him. It's really a, a unique and disappointing situation for all involved there. Which which front office do you think is an easier route ahead, Philly or Houston? <laughs> well, I think uh, Philly does just because they're established. They know they've been around each other. The ownership, Howie Roseman has been there. Whereas with Houston, um, you know, the Deshaun Watson situation and why that came to pass is amazing to me where the biggest commodity in sports is a franchise quarterback and not only you hear franchise quarterback, but Deshaun Watson is a Hall of Fame type quarterback. You're not just talking about a regular guy. You're talking about someone who could go to a Hall of Fame. So for it to come to this, it's really malpractice in the organization. And whoever is at fault for that, whether it's this Jack Easterby guy or the ownership, that, that really is malpractice where um, a, a guy of, of Deshaun Watson's caliber is not happy and wants to get out of there because that's all you want as far as an organization. You've done the hard part. You've got a franchise quarterback, a Hall of Fame quarterback. Now make him happy and do all you can with your organization to make him thrive and survive. And it seems like they're doing everything 
not not to do that. So uh, I would say Philly's easier if I had to compare the two. Did you have any comparable situations? I know it's not going to be the franchise quarterback during your time in either Buffalo or New York or Philly where there's a guy who you knew you wanted in the building, but he didn't want to be there? Not really. I can't think of it. You know, usually we were kind of had stay by a part of stable uh, organizations and, and winning organizations. So whenever we recruit for agents or we kind of retain our guys, everybody kind of wanted to be there and we kind of could coax people choose who we wanted to. I, I don't really remember right offhand of someone saying, I'm disgruntled. I'm unhappy. I want to get out of there. You know, the Odell situation with New York, I was gone at that point. So um, <clears throat> that would come to mind, but I wasn't a part of that. Hey, one last uh, cur currently question. Who do you think made the best front office hire this offseason? I really like, I really like uh, Atlanta with Terry Fontenot. I just think he's earned his, his way to get there and especially hiring out of the same division um, with the Saints, you know, all he's done with the Saints. So I thought that was a shrewd move by Atlanta and Terry's, uh, you know, a guy I really respect and like the things he's done and think he has a bright future. What about here in D.C. with Martin Mayhew? Man, I love Martin. Martin uh, actually worked with us in New York uh, for a year um, when he, um, you know, was let go by Detroit and then just kind of found a home with us just for a year and really enjoyed working with Martin. And I think Martin learned a lot from the way we did things well. And I'm glad he got a chance back in San Fran to kind of reinvigorate his career and, and rejuvenate his career and definitely to go back home since he played for Washington um, to, to go back with that situation. Look kind of tenuous at first when they hired Marty Herney and it's like, oh man, here we go. But then I'm glad that they kind of shifted gears and let Martin uh, brought Martin in there afterwards to let him run the GM side of it. Do you think it can work because with with Rivera kind of being the top dog and having kind of two front office guys kind of answering to him because it's an interesting buildup. Do you think that can work going forward? Yeah, I think the way it's set up is that Marty's been around and Marty has already said, you know, Marty's kind of, you know, egoless with that. And I, I, I think the way they set that up, everyone knew what their roles were. And that's what it is when you get a part of the front office or coaching, you establish what the roles are at first and everybody should fall in line. It's when you don't establish people's roles and titles and responsibilities, that's when you see a lot of, uh, you know, backstabbing and undermining and here to there, but it seems as if they have clearly defined roles there with, uh, and, uh, talk about Marty being, you know, selfless. I mean, Martin Mayhew is one of the most selfless people you have, Ron Rivera as well. So I think it'll work just because of the personalities you have and the established identities. Yeah, so I want to get into your career a little bit. How'd you end up at Princeton? Uh, well, <laughs> so I'm from Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia area, and uh, kind of always grew up wanting to go to the University of Pennsylvania. And then, but, uh, you know, go Ivy League. But once I started getting recruited and um, Princeton started recruiting me for football and, I mean, I went to campus and it was just amazing. There's nothing like it. I'm a little biased, but I've got it for 20 plus years and I've been to every campus on this in the country. So our, ours is the best. This is the best. So I got there and the, the, the coach that was recruiting me, Steve Verbert, he's actually still on the staff there. And he just did a wonderful job and just made me feel welcome when my parents came up there. They loved it. They fell in love. So it kind of was a no brainer that I was far enough away from home, an hour away from Philly, but just the campus and Princeton, the prestige and the recruiting side of it, they really did a, an outstanding job uh, with making me feel wanted. So uh, it, it really was an easy choice. Is that Whole Foods there before when you were there? I remember because I've been to Princeton. I've been to Princeton in a while. There used to be a beautiful Whole Foods right down the road. 
I don't know if it was. Man, I, if it was, I wasn't going to no Whole Foods. I was wild, wild, getting dollars. What's that called? Fresh Fields. It's Fresh Fields. Shout yeah. out to Fresh Fields. Nobody talks about Fresh Fields. Yeah, no, man. I couldn't. I wasn't thinking about no Whole Foods. If if Princeton wasn't on the table, what was your next your next choice? I would have went to Penn. I would have went to Penn, and um, you know, it was right there. They did a good job recruiting as well. And actually, we lost. We my sophomore year, we won the Ivy. My junior and senior year, we lost to Penn, and that group I would have been in there with. Um, actually got to become good friends with a lot of players that were on that 10 team that I would have been a part of their recruiting class. Uh, so I would have, I would have won either way, but, you know, that Princeton definitely set me up uh, with the connections and, and the networking that, that, that shot me off in my career. So, so every, every, all uh, student athletes always talk about, are right, you got a lot of balance. You got, you got your school life, you got, you got practice, you got working out, you got training, you got games. How much added schoolwork is it when you think about an Ivy league education? <laughs> Well, I really can't compare because I don't know how much the other ones do. It was just, it just, I think any college student, there's an adjustment, but especially with Princeton, I just had to learn. And most people just have to learn how to handle all the work that you have that handle, uh, you know, it's just impossible to just treat it like you do in high school. You know, in high school, things kind of came easy to me. And once I got to Princeton my freshman year, I had to get, you know, kind of punched in the mouth a little bit like, whoa, you got to buckle down and kind of. Uh, learn how to learn how to study, learn how to bu- budget your time. So I think that's the biggest thing with Ivy League schools with Princeton is learning how to handle all the coursework you have. And then so you, I see you on here, you, you still, it, according to your NFL Network bio, you still hold five Princeton records. I don't know if that's accurate. You yeah, I had six at one point, but yeah, I guess that somebody beat me on one of them. <laughs> yeah, I got five. <laughs> So, so when you're putting up all these accolades, obviously with an Ivy League school, were, were you thinking about the NFL as potentially a player or were you, what was your mindset? You know, I never, even when I was playing, I had a good career, but I just, I knew, and there was another guy that played with me, an offensive lineman, his name was Carl Teeter. And when we, the season was winding down, we had scouts coming in to watch his practice and things of that nature and had some workouts after, but I really was kind of checked out knowing, all right, my career is over and I need to move on. And while I played at Princeton, I worked in the sports communications department. So I saw another side of sports more so than just being a player or a coach and knew that there could be a career behind the scenes. And there were so many jobs behind the scenes. So I got to, you know, do that and be in touch with the athletic directors and see what went on behind the scenes. And that's when I knew, hey, I want to continue my career in sports, not as a player, but uh, doing something else. I didn't know what exactly, but I just knew I wanted to be involved. And then for somebody that wanted, wants to kind of model your career, but how did you get your foot in the door? So at that time, it was just sending out, res- typing up resumes, putting them in envelopes, putting stamps on. I know this generation now, I'd say this all the time when I mentor, they don't, it's not just pushing a button in LinkedIn or Indeed. And, you know, you got your resume out to 300 people. It's, you know, you had to type it up and and address it and do research to find out where people were, get addresses. So I was just doing that, just sending out resumes to anybody possible, NFL teams, uh, college departments, uh, league offices, and marketing to marketing companies, just anything uh, I could do. I interviewed for Starter. I don't know if you remember Starter Jackets. They're still, around. They're, they're still around. They're still around. Are, are they? Okay. So I, I, I don't know. I'm not, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. know. But yeah, I, I interviewed for Starter. I mean, I, I was just was just trying to get anything and then just got back you know, just you get a lot more no's or just no responses than you do uh, yeses. But the first uh, yes I got was with um, the New York Giants and their public relations department. And then from there, 
I worked for them and then things just started kind of happening where you network, you meet, you hear about things, you go from one to another. So worked for the Giants and then I worked at Columbia University in their athletic department. Uh, then I worked um, with the Eagles in the scouting department, went to grad school, all these internships, went to grad school. And then once I was done at grad school at UMass, hired full-time as a scout with the Eagles. And then, so how did you sort of make a name for yourself? What were you kind of doing that you thought kind of set yourself apart from the rest of the guys in the front office? Man, I, it's just, I just had, you know, I was selfless. Again, I always tell this selfless, but I was, uh, I had, uh, you know, independent thought. I had independent thought and I was strong in the convictions that I did. Obviously I did the work. That's a prerequisite with people to understand. It's like working hard, that, that should just be the baseline for what you're, you're trying to get in a job. But, okay, what else can you add? And I added, you know, I think I had a natural talent for scouting and seeing things when I would sit with the directors and stuff and I had natural eye to do that. But also it was strong, again, strong in my convictions, uh, but, but, a, but a team player willing to do anything for my department, for my, my superior, whoever that was. And um, just from that, you, you just, you work for someone and you do that and they're like, hey, this guy's kind of, you know, he's talented, he's good, he's special. And then you, they'll, they'll recommend you somewhere just trying to, you know, so you have to, you have to take care of business where you are, but network, but you have to be talented with it. What's the smallest school you visited to check out a player? Man, I've been to them all. Um, geez. I, Anything where you have to ask for directions, like, all right, this is not on the map. You got to yeah, find Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, first starting out, I, that was that was great back in the Again, talking about not having LinkedIn and Indeed back in the day, we didn't have GPS. So I had to, you had to get a map, a big atlas. I used to, it was like the fun, most fun thing starting out each year, finding a new atlas and mapping out where I go. And you're driving on in the middle of nowhere and, you know, pulling out the atlas and, and this and that. But, you know, I've, I've been to basically every school, but I will say my very first scouting trip was, and I'm from, again, I, I was from Philadelphia, I went to Princeton, UMass. I've been on the Northeast my whole life, had never really gone anywhere. I went to, took a trip to Atlanta for a family reunion. But besides that, hadn't really been anywhere. And my very first scouting trip, I had to go to the University of Montana. So I flew all the way out there, man. I, the middle of the night, I get there and I'm just like, what is going on here? So, and I had 7-Eleven there, right? They got a 7-Eleven out there? 7-Eleven? I don't know what they had. I was scared <laughs> to death. But I had to drive. So I scouted that next day at the University of Montana. Jason Crebo, I still remember the player's name. He was number 37, a linebacker. And I had to drive from there to University of Idaho, which was like a five-hour drive and winding through the mountains and stuff, man. I was like, man, what am I doing here? But it, it, it was a pretty special time back then. I have a question. Why do you think there is there isn't as much um, effort putting into scouting for international players in the NFL? Well, the NFL is trying to develop uh, their international uh, department. With that, actually, a friend of mine, another Princeton uh, Princeton grad, was a freshman when I was a senior there, named Damani Leach. He kind of runs the NFL league office's international program development program. I, I consult with the league office and a few years ago, I actually got to go to Australia where we kind of had a oh. combine in Australia for people. So there is that effort They're They're just so, 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 so far behind with football. I mean, they don't know the basics. And even if you have someone that's fairly athletic, they're just so far behind with the skills that they need. Uh, so that's what the NFL is trying to do, promote kind of grassroots developmental programs uh, in a lot of different countries. So hopefully, you know, let's say it might take 20 years, you know, but to try to just develop players overseas. 
So I have an idea to grow the game. I've pitched it to a couple people. I don't know how the logistics would work out, but it, it makes sense to me. I think eventually when they add the the when they add the game to the schedule, they should put a uh, one week of the year have bye weeks in front and back of it. So there's a, it's one game in three weeks, and on that day you have 24 hours of consecutive of, of uh, consecutive football and put games around the globe. That's I'm sure that <laughs> that one. Well, you know they've had the games in in London and in Mexico and yeah, you put the Bengals on in like Tanzania. They're like yeah, the prime, yeah, prime yeah, time games on here. They're like, oh, this is interesting. But yeah, like, people have no idea what's going on. But I'm sure <laughs> it'll show. People will show up. Yeah, the Jets will play at 6 a.m. Eastern time. And we'll, we'll figure it out. I don't know how it's going to work, especially the pandemic. But one day, one day. Yeah, that's interesting. Who, who's a guy that you kind of like when you saw his first tape? Uh, when you first saw his tape, he kind of stuck out to you, and everybody's like, oh, he's not going to do anything. Uh, well. You know, one guy that kind of was under the radar, so Jason Pierre-Paul, JPP. So, um, you know, he had just got to South Florida. He was kind of an unknown. He went to junior college, a couple of different junior colleges, got to South Florida. And at the time that uh, South Florida had a guy named George Selby, who the year before was an All-American, had, I believe, 16 and a half sacks, 22, 22 and a half tackles for loss. I mean, he was the guy that you were going into South Florida to see. But then when you got there and you just, you're actually, I was in the actually defensive line meeting room and they had a big chart up with each player and their stats for each game and all that. And so I'm watching tape and this number 90 just keeps like jumping off the tape. Like what? And I, I had to keep checking the chart to make sure I'm like, I'm supposed to be watching George Selby. He was 95, but this 90 guy keeps, and I kept looking up and was like, damn, I'm look, I must be looking at the wrong guy. But it was JPP, and I, you know, I'd ask Coach like, "Hey, what's up with this guy?" And sure enough, you know, he just kept getting better and better throughout the year. And um, actually, when he they played Rutgers later on in the year, and I brought our general manager at the time, Jerry Reese, like, "You got to come to the game to see this guy, JPP." And obviously, you know, went through the whole draft process with him, and went down to his workout and and all that. So you know, even up to drafting him, he was kind of an unknown where people didn't know whether he was going to develop. And just to see him in the Super Bowl this year and to come full circle for him and yeah. all he's been through uh, off the field, this really a unique story. They'll do a documentary on him okay. one day about his career. Uh, but it, yeah, he was the one where just kind of like, Oh man, what, what is going on with this guy? After the fireworks incident and after the, the car crash, did you think, all right, this is it for him? Or did you think? Yeah, I mean, the guy that, that, that blows his hand off and breaks his neck and people forget he broke his neck a couple of years yeah. after that. Yeah. And yeah. he's still, he's still doing it. But I mean, maybe the most unique talent, person that i've been around in 20 plus years of scouting because i remember when he came out there that first came back hit the club i'm like all right this guy's this guy's different this guy's built yeah different. oh yeah, oh, yeah. Did, did were you did you um what was the first time you saw a scout uh, like the kind of like the reports on brandon jacobs because i know he, i interviewed him i know he bounced around a little bit before he ended up i think it was in southern illinois yeah 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 so i was with um either philly or Buffalo when Brandon okay. came out. I wasn't with the Giants as part of that draft process, but I remember seeing him at the, the East-West All-Star game uh, out in San Fran. They was out in San Fran at the time, and they were practicing in the baseball stadium, and you know, he just looked like, what was that defensive lineman doing over there hanging out with the with the running backs and stuff, and uh, yeah, yeah, Brandon uh, helped, us win, helped us win that Super Bowl. Couple Super Bowls. How, how quickly can you see if a guy's got, got it? You know, I, it, it, 
it should be for me. It, I kind of can see it maybe just ten plays or so. I mean, it's you. You just see the skill set. You see the athletic ability. You see the effort. You see if he's showing up on tape. You see the movement, the feet. Um, so to me, I can kind of identify it right away, and then you just watch more tape to kind of reaffirm what you're seeing, and to see what that player does consistently or what he does inconsistently throughout watching three, four, five, six, ten tapes, however much you watch, you just you're just trying to reaffirm what you're seeing instantly. It's kind of like that Malcolm Gladwell book Blink. I don't know if you've read that that book mm-hmm. where you should read that where if someone's really good at something or an expert at what they do, they put in so many, so many hours of doing it that once they come to make a decision, they can really make the decision very quickly, but it's based off of them having so much experience and, and putting in so many hours of studying what they're doing. And I kind of feel like that with me watching tape, watching the players that done it for so long and have such a database of information that when I see something on film, it kind of just, bam, see it, blink, just see it. And so as you're kind of um, building your way up the ranks of the Giants, what were you kind of doing just to keep trying new things just to kind of stand out? Man, it was just really just, yeah, I started out as a college scout. And then that was mostly my career with with Philly and I became a director, I became the youngest director, college scouting director when I was 27 years old. And then I always was kind of on the, the, um, you know, the, the college side, uh, of course, would watch pro film on my own and do things like that. But then once I really got with the Giants, I kind of, the general manager and Jerry Reese kind of started putting more and more on my plate to expand what I could do and learning about the salary cap, learning about contracts, uh, always do that. And with the Giants, everyone kind of was really a collective and supportive. And no matter what you did, if you were pro college, uh, cap marketing department, it was really hey, can I learn from what you're doing? Can I find out? Can I see what's going on, on on this side of the building? Can I see what you guys are doing? So I always just kind of learn what the entire, not only scouting department was doing, but what the coaching staff was doing, what the, the you know, the equipment side was doing. How, why are you guys doing it like that? So I always just wanted to understand the bigger picture in each department around uh, the entire organization. Do, do you know who's the guy that kind of sold everybody on David Tyree? I wasn't a part of that either. The second one. The second one. What's you, that? You were there for the second one, the second Super Bowl. I was there for both, but oh, as far both. as the drafting, dra- oh no, drafting Tyree. Yeah, I wasn't no. there when they drafted Tyree. Oh, interesting. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, got to know David really well just because after his playing career, he worked for us for yeah. player development department. Oh, but no. no, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Draft was part of their draft process with him. What were the What were those Super Bowls like? Uh, just indescribable, man. It's just, uh, you just get on a run there, especially with us where the two years we were, um, you know, we weren't 13 and 13 and three or, or 12 and four. I mean, we were nine and seven, 10 and six, nine and seven. So, you know, we kind of right to the very end, it's, um, you know, you're, it's, it's nail biting. And, and then once, but once we got in the playoffs and started getting on a roll and you just feel that sensation of togetherness that everyone has um you just feel unbeatable at the time and you know I had been a part of with with the Eagles you know three NFC championship games and we were we were going 12 and 4 winning our winning NFC East every year and you know the number one seed a couple years number two seed I mean we were as if you look at the regular season the part of the Eagles teams I was with compared to the Giants teams the Eagles teams were better you know what I mean but we just got to those championship games and couldn't close the deal whereas with the Giants we were 
you know, average regular season teams. But once we got to the playoffs, our strengths really kind of got accentuated. Um, you know, obviously the defensive line and the playmakers we had on offense. And it's just magical, man. Until you go through it, you don't, you can't really, you can't really feel it, you know how it feels until you go through it. So, so question for you, who, who, what is the most underrated front office in the NFL right now that nobody talks about and they're not getting the great credit? The most underrated? Oh, man. Who's, who's doing it? So people that are always thinking my team's not doing anything right and you're like, just wait. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess it, I guess the, the teams that are winning, you know, Baltimore always does a great job, you know, historically has done it. I don't think, I don't think they're underrated. I think so that's hard to say. Um but uh, yeah, that, you, you threw me off, threw me off, threw me a curveball with that one to say who's <laughs> underrated. <laughs> Interesting. And then, so I have a question. Did you? When did you kind of? Oh, one one other um, question about uh, front office. What's the most? What's the largest number of hours you've ever spent in one week watching college tape? Ooh. You don't even. You just lose count. You don't even count. You just go. You just go day to day, and you just not knocking it out. And especially when you're traveling, when you're on the go. So what happens for a college scout? Let's say is you're you're just traveling to Florida. You go down to Florida. Let's so say you're at Florida State one day or a day and a half, and then you go to University of Florida, and you're at South Florida, and then University of Miami. And each day you're just you know in there from seven in the morning until whenever you leave practice at you know six thirty at night, and then you're traveling to the next place. You get to the hotel and you're typing up reports and man you go to sleep and you're on to the next one but then you know preparing for the draft really draft meetings you're uh, you know you're, you're knocking out a lot of tape you're meeting and then you're watching tape at night so you, you don't even when you're in the nfl you don't count hours you just go you think there's gonna be a lot more misses this coming year as and in the last year with in terms of draft evals since there's not as much kind of like face-to-face -face interaction and a lot more virtual and maybe you're not seeing it up close and personal no, I, I think that actually I'm betting on it might be better just because it'll really the essence of good players is what they do on film. And post season is when things start kind of getting going awry where the people who are good players, they start getting torn down for things. And the people who aren't great players are built up for 40 times and vertical jumps and things like that. So I'm thinking this year it might be the, the teams that have strong evaluators, film evaluators will do really well and more teams will stick to the essence of what scouting is. And that's what you evaluate on tape and not what happens in non-realistic game situations of the combine and workouts, things of that nature. What's your favorite draft story? The favorite one. Well, the, just as far as like draft day or yeah, just yeah like a draft day story that you're like this is this is unbelievable <laughs> well well i'll go back to you know the don when i was with philly with donovan McNabb, and um you know part of that whole process and and at the time it was you know the group of quarterbacks tim couch and achilles smith Cade McNown, dante Culpepper. so there was a group of guys and donovan really wasn't you know we kind of stepped out with him as well where he wasn't the consensus Hey, this guy's going to be a great NFL quarterback. And if you remember, that's when the Philadelphia fans, they wanted Ricky Williams. Um, so the running back from Texas Heisman Trophy winner and the, the, the town was going crazy for months about we should draft Ricky Williams with the, the number two pick. Um, of course, Donovan gets booed on draft day, which was awful. In but Philly? In Philly? Yeah. No. So they went up, remember, they went up to New York and went crazy and blew them. <laughs> but in the draft room, 
So at the time, you know, everybody's in the draft room together, owners and stuff like that. And the TVs are on and we should have been expecting this. But of course, the you're hearing the boos and the announcers saying, what are the Eagles doing? Uh, you know, and, and at the time, our college scouting director, his name was John Goler. He had passed away a, a few years later. And he was a kind of a, you know, a tough old school dude, man. And he just went over to all the TVs talking about what, what are the Eagles doing? And he just went over to the uh, the power cord and just ripped all, all the power cords out the wall. Like, we don't need, we don't, this is our guy. We don't need to hear this mess anymore. And, you know, we guys that are part of that, you know, my scouts and friends that were part of that, we always talk about that story. Just like, he didn't care if the owners were in there or what, like, uh, this is enough, enough is enough. Awesome. That's awesome. How, how did you kind of pivot into doing media? So, you know, after the Giants, you know, uh, Jerry Reese got let go and I was a part of me and him got, everybody saw us as a package deal. That's a whole nother podcast, another story. But, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I was just looking, all right, what, what's next? What's next? What, what do I want to do? And um, I had some really good friends um, who were like, hey, man, I, Peter John Baptiste, who's now the head uh, PR guy at Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns, he was, I actually knew him. He was an undergrad at UMass when I was in grad school. And kind of helped him get started in his career. And we always were really close friends. But uh, once I was, he was like, man, I think you'd be good at the media. I'll, I'll put you in touch with someone, you know, a media agent who I really trust and see if he can help you out. And just from there, I just started um, do, just going. He, he gave me, you know, you basically audition, you know, they, they have you out there for free and they do, do a couple of shows, see if they like you. And from there uh, they did. And uh, just started getting more and more and you, you get a contract, you get signed with, just kind of like a player gets signed. So, you know, that really was a transition of, I kind of had my eye on it and then just people helped me out and it transitioned just because of, of a break here and there. And, and I, I, they liked what I did once I auditioned for it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then, so I know you're on a lot of the different programs they have in NFL. How can people catch up with you, see everything you're doing, kind of keep up with you on social media? Uh, well, at Mark Ross, this is my Twitter and I'm, you know, I'm on all the different shows and I, I got to do better with the social media stuff. It was not in my, not my DNA to do that. So I got to get forced to do that, but yeah, just um, pop in, especially now draft time, free agency stuff. They'll have me on a lot more just from the front office side. That was the big thing where I kind of hit it right where the NFL network was looking for more of the front office perspective, not just the player or ex coach perspective, but the front office perspective on what goes on behind the scenes. Let's get one last question for you. Who's your biggest sleeper for this year's draft? How about uh, hey, he coming out of nowhere, coming out of yeah. left field with it, Mac? Yeah. If I give the sleeper, then he won't be. <laughs> I'll save that for TV. We always say that in production meetings. We'll save it for TV. So. <laughs> Perfect, mate. 